I'm Steve Schneider. I'm the President and CEO of the Fleet Science Center here in San Diego. Awesome. I'd like to welcome to our panel, Time Travel in the Quantum Realm. So for all of you, this is your first time. Welcome. For those of you who are coming back a second time from the future, was really that good. So welcome. So uh, we've got a great panel today. We're going to jump right into it with all sorts of great stuff. So let's uh, let's start. Let me give you some introductions. So down at the end there, we have Eric Nicholson. He is a, a lecturer in physics at UCSD, uh, and he has a uh, uh, he's published a book called Quirky Qu Quantum Concepts, um, which is easier to read than pronounce. Trust me. Uh, published by Springer. Uh, he's an electrical engineer in semiconductors, communication systems. Then when he got done with that, then he went back and got a PhD in physics. So welcome, Eric. Next to Eric. We have Dr. Clifford Johnson. He's a professor of physics at USC. His research concentrates on topics such as quantum gravity, quantum black holes, and string theory. He's also been a science advisor in a number of TV films, uh, TV, TV projects, film projects, books, video games, and more. So if you need some advising on science, apparently Clifford is your guy. Uh, so welcome. Uh, he's also uh, done a number of stuff with uh, Avengers, Ragnarok, Agent Carter, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, then, who's next? Ah! Next up, we have Kim Griest. He is a professor of physics emeritus at UCSD, fellow of the American Physical Society. He specializes in particle physics, particle astrophysics, and he's published extensively in the subjects of dark matter, dark energy, cosmology, and gravitational lensing. Next to him, we have Elizabeth Simmons. He's the chief. Chief Academic Officer at UC San, UC San Diego, a lifelong science fiction fantasy fan across literature, comics, graphic novels, TV, and film, consistent with her long-standing academic interest in the connection between science and society. So this is her first Comic-Con. Last but not least, our, our final panelist here is a screenwriter. Uh, he does mostly small indie films. <laughs> I think his latest was a production of a Beckett play, uh, exactly. something along those exactly. lines. Uh, uh, yeah, so yeah, so that uh, turns out, to, in addition to things like the, the Narnia Chronicles, uh, he's been a little involved in some of the Avengers films. Most of the Captain America films, Avengers, Infinity War, Endgame. I, I know that one of his goals is to not just have the number two and number four grossing movies of all time, but to shoot for number one and tomorrow? Uh, so they say. So they say tomorrow. So you could be the ticket that puts him over the top? <laughs> Help me out here. You know what you're doing tonight after the after parties. So welcome, Christopher Marcus. Hello. All right, so let's just dive into it. I want to start with you, Chris, a little bit about. So, um, you got this film? Yeah. You did a snap? Mm-hmm. And then you got to find your way out of it. Yeah, it was a bit of a problem. <laughs> so, before you got to time travel, you looked at a couple other things, maybe? Well, we, you know, we, we knew we wanted the first movie to end with this. And then we had to figure out how to fix that. And we didn't want to get out of jail free card. We didn't want to, you know find out he didn't actually did this, he did this. Um, and, you know, time machine comes up very quickly the same way like, well, you know, rocket jetpack would come up quickly. Like it's a cheesy science fiction idea that you throw out quickly and go like, we can't do that, it's too stupid. Um, obviously it's not stupid. Um, <laughs> But uh, we had this 
great thing happened, which is we weren't allowed to use Ant-Man in the first movie because there was an Ant-Man movie coming out in between Infinity War and Endgame. And if he was in Infinity War, you would have a dark and depressing Ant-Man movie, which is not what anybody wants out of a Paul Rudd movie. Um, and so we kept him out. But we were allowed to use him for the second one, which opened up Hank Pym and the Quantum Realm. And literally, we're just Googling on, I Googled Quantum Realm. This is, this is how great things happen. Everyone over on the other side of the table in the conference room where we were trapped for months. This is fall of 2015. We're talking about something else, and I Googled Quantum Realm, and I'm like, and time is different in there. And I think I sort of raised my hand and went, we can do a time machine, because we have an excuse to do a time machine. Um, and that is around when Cooler has prevailed and brought in an actual physicist <laughs> to tell us either we were crazy or we were right or that we were crazy, but it was okay to do it because, you know, we're not making a documentary. Um, and all of those things happened, and here we are. So when you, you, say, so you say time travel, right? Obviously, you need to go a little bit further than just saying, and time travel is the solution in there. And so, time travel happens. And time travel happens, yeah. and everything is okay. How well, to develop it? Well, we had to decide what our time travel rules are, and it turned out very quickly that everyone's default time travel rules are back to the future. I don't know how people thought about time travel, maybe H.G. Wells, <laughs> prior to that, but it has completely overwritten the minds of most people in that those are the rules of time travel. If you if you if you step on a a, a, a twig in 1955, the tree will not grow later. Um, and that created a, just a nightmare of storytelling because we needed to go get six things, which would imply you then have six effects going on in, in the present, which we were trying to change. Um, and it just made for just terrible storytelling. Back to the Future does not tell the story in the time that is changing. They have the very nice device of the photograph where people are disappearing. Works great. You're never in 1983 or whenever it is seeing Michael J. Fox's brother slowly disintegrate or whatever the hell is happening. <laughs> That's a tough one. It also, if you follow that, the Back to the Future rules, made solving the problem really pretty easy. Like you could go back, just pluck one little stone out, stick it in your pocket, it never happened. And it's incumbent upon us with 30 superheroes and this many millions of dollars at stake to make it a little more challenging. So. Those rules, didn't, those rules did not work for us. Um, and so we had to rejigger them, and luckily we have the Infinity Stones, which seem to have their own rules, and so why didn't we just lay some, excuse me, lay some uh, time travel rules on them so we, as the Ancient One said, made it that you only create these branch realities when you remove an Infinity Stone from that time. 
so we could tighten up the possibilities. Because um, writing is all about just winnowing down the possibilities. The worst moment in any project is when you have too many options. And so ideally, as time goes on, you're killing off options to get to one story. Um, which is why people get excited, when people get excited about the multiverse, I just stare at them like, what? You can't, you, your stakes are gone. Like, it, well, one inch over, there's a room where this didn't happen. It's like, well, then why are we telling the story? Um, you know, oh, your dog died? Let's go over there and get your other dog from, you know. Um, so while it, you know, may be a fascinating idea, it's pretty hard on drama. Um, but the time travel, on the whole, was actually great for drama, it turned out, because everyone had undealt with issues in their past so that we could send our heroes back not to fight monsters or supervillains, but to talk to their dads or to talk to their moms or, uh, or to create new problems. But it became, while it was a sort of high science fiction device to get magic stones, it also turned out to be a really great way to spend really the, the largest section of one of the most expensive movies of all time on family drama. To basically just stealth in a family drama into the middle of this movie, which is I think is part of the reason it works, is because you're not, it's not just punching all the way through it. There's a lot of human emotion in there made possible by the wonderful device of time drama. So, Clifford, obviously you were brought in uh, early on in this to kind of talk through possibilities of time travel. Um, when you look at, uh, at what you would kind of initially brought into this, let's kind of see where they went, kind of what was, what was the process like for, uh, for you in this between your initial input and what you ended up seeing on the screen? Well, so um, I would say first of all that this is sort of the ideal way science advising should work, which is that... Um, you know, the typical thing you get is that someone sends you a script they may be about to shoot in a month, next week, and you've got to throw in some buzzwords and tweak here and there. <laughs> so you have no real lasting impact on the shape of the story. The science isn't in the DNA of the story. Um, when you get to talk to people early on, when they're still when they're still brainstorming, when they're still trying to shape the story, that can be produce some of the most uh, lasting and powerful work in terms of the melding of science and entertainment in this sort of great way. And so this was one of those examples. And so at that stage where I think you, you know, not long after uh, you arrived at the Ant-Man solution, yeah. um, we had that meeting, excuse me, <clears throat> and uh, I came in and it was a room full of, so many sort of wide open eyes waiting to hear what um, what uh, what, I, what, I, what I'm going to have to say. Can you fix it for me? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things we did is we brainstormed what had been done in movies before. Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctly going, uh, 
so many of us have a, 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 a fond uh, um, soft spot for Back to the Future, but please don't do Back to the Future. I think you'd already <laughs> arrived at that on your own, but I, I'm, 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 uh, I distinctly remember us going, yeah, let's, that, that would not be the way to go. Um, uh, I think scientists who love films like Back to the Future can, can have fun with it, and you know you put your scientist brain on the side and and uh, just 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 uh, just go with it. Um, but for this, it really needed something something different, mm -hmm. and so I was just delighted when I heard that the Ant Man solution was. Um, was uh, being mooted because yes, uh, those of us who work in this field um, are aware of the fact that both classically, since Einstein, uh, both on the classical side and the quantum side, one of the amazing things we've discovered about our universe is that time is malleable. Maybe not as malleable as, as all that, but certainly there are hints that time has an aspect to it that uh, has yet to be understood. What it is may, may still, uh, we still need to understand more about it. We know that time travel into the future is possible. Um, and uh, time travel in the past is, is thought with difficulty, but it's fun to play with. And so one of the things we did is we talked about some of the scenarios. Some of the things that you arrived at possibly independently or possibly as a result of the conversation between either myself or other scientists was the idea that the device that helps you do time travel in some sense puts limitations. And that, that's a very powerful thing. Indeed, you don't want it to be some, an all-powerful magic wand that you can wave at any point. But it does seem that in physics, um, the scenarios in which, at least on paper, you could construct something that looks like a time machine, especially if you include quantum physics, it also gives you rules um, that you that you can't break. Uh, you know, for some versions of time machines, you cannot go back further in time than the moment at which that time machine was made, for example. So that puts some nice sort of writerly constraints. So we talked about a lot of those mm -hmm. kinds of things, and. Um, I think uh, you know. Then it was the writer's job to sort of pull from various aspects of those things we brainstormed and weave it into something. And when I sat and watched the movie, I was I was just blown away. Um, as as um, as as Chris said, you know, there's something about being able to use time travel to do more than just uh, you know, fix a problem, but then it produces all of these opportunities to do great things with the story arcs emotionally. Um, that I thought that was very impressively done. And, um, and uh, then there's just sort of certain satisfying things. Uh, one of the things that I remember asking whether it would be possible, when we talked about time travel movies that or, or other aspects of science fiction that I think really works well is, is trying to lay in things where you can see that the consequences of the time travel were either implicitly or explicitly there all along. You just mm. haven't noticed it. And um, I, think, I think there are even aspects of that in, uh, in, in, the, in the film as well. And, uh, well, it did. It. <laughs> we'll get to Captain yeah. America at the end of the movie. Right. And, and whether that breaks all our own right. rules. <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a way out for you on that, but we can get to that. Anyway, I should, I should let others talk, but I should say the process was delightful, and uh, seeing the output of the process 
Um, and finally, being able to talk about it after three years of secrecy was quite a relief. <laughs> and I'm so glad that that Back to the Future comment, got, wherever it came from, is one of the funniest lines yeah, in the whole movie. When he says, you mean Back to the Future's bullshit? <laughs> we, we have tape also of Tilda Swinton saying it, if you'd like to hear that. <laughs> we gave it to several characters to try and find out. <laughs> no offense to Back to the Future or the makers of it. No, it's a delightful no, no. film. So, so uh, you, uh, so Christian, then takes some of these, these rules as input. So, as you were writing the script, right, as mm. you kind of go from this notion, it's going to be time travel, and you've got some initial idea of how you're going to do it. Presumably, you run into situations where the rules you wrote don't quite work anymore. So, did you kind of modify them as they went along to fit the sort of back and forth between the story? Or yeah, um, yes, but also. Uh, you close one eye and try to just keep going because you, if you start trying to make your time travel correct, you'll eventually, I, I guess, invent a time machine because, <laughs> because, wow, you didn't get it wrong. You must know how to travel through time. Um, so, what's that? What are the rules? So glad you asked. Um, in the movie. The rules are basically, if you, you can go back, you can do whatever you want, it won't affect the future unless you take out an infinity stone, then it branches. Um, so Steve only had to fix six, six paths. There weren't 55 million paths because of every encounter that they had. So that, so that we could do things like have Captain America fight himself without that creating you know, a cosmic problem as opposed to a physical problem between two people. Um, and I would like to believe through some sort of bullshit time loop <laughs> paradox. <laughs> I'm gonna throw in the words that you use when you're bullshitting science in a movie. Some sort of quantum paradox <laughs> that there are indeed two Captain Americas in the MCU timeline. And that Steve Rogers, who looped back into time, has therefore always been there. And that he is living somewhere else in the movies you're watching, and what I'd really like to believe is that there's an old man sitting in back at Peggy's funeral in Civil War, and that's old Steve Rogers, watching young Steve Rogers carry old Steve Rogers' wife up to uh, the front of the church. Can I explain it scientifically? Mm -hmm. Not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so it brings up, it brings up, okay, so these are sort of the rules you work with under. So, mm. All right. What are the rest of the rules? What are the real rules? What are the, the real rules? rules Liz? What are the real rules as far as we know? Or let me ask the question. Do we have any idea if there are any rules? Well, I'd, also, I'd like to just say that man over there said, we can travel into the future. I just dropped it and then walked away. <laughs> We're doing it one second every second. <laughs> oh, no. You can do a lot more than that. You can go um, next to a black hole and go go faster, you can change the speed of time. But going back in time, classically, 
it's interesting that in general relativity, Einstein's theory, there are solutions like in a rotating black hole in the inside the ring singularity, there are closed time-like curves. And if you went around those, you go back in time. That's a solution of Einstein's theories. I mean, that's the best theories we have, except it doesn't include quantum mechanics. But the problem is, astrophysicists, almost all of them believe that those kind of solutions, time machine solutions, are completely unstable. And so in the real world, you can't do it. And most physicists would believe in the real world, you cannot have a time machine, basically because of these instabilities and because of the grandfather paradox. So at some point I can, that those instabilities are easy to understand. Can I, can I give this example of the, of the? Please. Okay, so here's an experiment when you get your time machine that no one ever does in a movie or a book, but I think it should be done. You have your time machine, at a few seconds before noon, you put something into it, anything, say a, a gold coin, a simple gold coin, and at 12 noon, you turn it on and send it back one second. Okay, one second before noon, it meets itself, just like Steve Rogers does, fights himself, and then, it, then it's one second before noon. One second later, it's noon, the time machine turns on. Both coins get sent back and meet themselves. Now there's four coins. One second later, all four get sent back. Now there's eight. 10 times around that loop, there's two to the 10th or 1,000 coins. 30 times around that loop, there's two to the 30th or about a billion coins. So a billion coins can't fit into your time machine. So what really would happen if you had a time machine is it would destroy itself in a heap of gold. <laughs> now ask yourself this though, where did all that gold come from? I know where it's, it's coming. It's just one, com it's one coin. So time machines, classical time machines, badly violate energy conservation. That same thing in the inner part of a rotating black hole where the closed time-like curve is, if even one little photon or atom gets in there, it only works as a solution if there's nothing there. So time machines, solutions to Einstein's equations, as far as I know, always involve nothing in them. Because as soon as something gets in there, this happens and they destroy themselves. Because but then if you, if you think about going, um, invoking the quantum realm, of course, the trade-off between time and energy is one, um, one way of phrasing the um, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So that's exactly the kind of trade-off you might want to use in a quantum version of time travel, perhaps in a movie, which <laughs> then allows for sort of for interesting possibilities. So I have to say, until I was asked to be on this panel, I had not spent a lot of time looking into time travel. I never took it seriously, but I started reading up on it. I read your paper, Clifford, and um, I, I was surprised at how much actual physics is being investigated by real physicists that's related to time travel. And I also never thought of it being connected with quantum mechanics, especially. I always thought of it as a relativistic thing. And and so they said, well, time travel in the quantum realm. They said it's going to be a very short panel, you know, because there isn't any. So bye. <laughs> no, no, it's actually true. In, in quantum mechanics, all the time machines come from relativity, Einstein's theory. In quantum mechanics at the atomic realm, we use time that's basically Newtonian. There's nothing funny about time, but it does get... But Kim sent me a, a paper by David Deutsch, which is alluded to in the, in the movie, in Endgame, and I read it, and Kim and I talked about it quite a bit, actually, and it does use ideas from quantum mechanics 
to actually resolve some of the traditional problems. And in fact, it resolves the, the gold coin problem in that uh, Deutsch is a believer in the multi-worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which says that the universe is actually splitting into sort of very similar, but not quite exactly the same duplicate parallel universes. And in that model with certain ideas from quantum mechanics, what you find is that energy is conserved on average over all the universes, but not specifically and individually in every universe. Uh, so then Kim's problem would just be that the gold coins end up in some other universe. And there is no, vi and they disappear from some of them. So there's, there's no creation of gold out of nothing. It's just gold moves around between the universes. Yeah, the Deutsch has the uh, time machine in his paper called, which is about quantum time travel, says that time machines are gateways between different branches of this multiverse that, mm -hmm. that you so rightly said, as soon as you can go between multiverses, there's so many of them, what are you doing? Yeah. But, uh, but David Deutsch has some rules about it, and, uh, and so when th that thousands of coins that appear, that's balanced by thousands of universes where they put the coin in the gold machine and in the time machine and it just disappears. And it has to happen. That's the eigenvalues and spectral decomposition that Tony Stark is talking about when he's looking at the Mobius strip. He says those words and that's how you would find these kind of fixed states of finding these solutions where he would say, okay, you know, the, when you put a, a coin into a machine, there's a 50% chance it's just gonna disappear. So, and so if you have, thousands of universes where they all put their coins in and they disappear and they all show up in your universe. No conservation of energy problem if you can take them all. Yep, Elizabeth, yeah. So, um, uh, uh, there are also um, a, a lot of fun things that have been going on in very recent work uh, yeah. when you combine, oh, I'm sorry, did you? Well, he said Elizabeth. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> the I, second time I've been called well, on I, 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 I apologize, I, I didn't hear it. I'm, I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. Yeah, my apologies. I was just going to say that I think that one of the really interesting things, if you listen to the conversation that was just going on, is the way that we started with um, talking about closed time-like loops, and then and then we had um, the, uh, the the Deutsch paper introduced, and suddenly we have multiverse, and we have all of these different ideas coming together and being tossed around and mixed up in different ways, which I think goes to some of what the kind of creativity and playfulness that goes on in the writing process. And so it, there actually is a lot of yeah. uh, congruity yeah. about, uh, about how this goes on. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really great point. And again, I apologize for stepping on your, your, what you were going to say. Um, some of the things that's been going on in, 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 in very contemporary research is, is when you try and put um, our understanding of gravity given to us by Einstein and quantum physics. So one of the things Einstein taught us, which is amazing, is that gravity really is this flexibility of space and time. Or you take time and space, you put them together, uh, that's essentially what, uh, what special relativity is about. And you have this thing called space-time, and you can slice it in different ways, and this gives you time running at different speeds, things you may have heard of. Um, but then general relativity, which tells you what gravity is, is just that the shape of space-time gets distorted. So warp drive and things like that you hear about in Star Trek, that's, that's all using that idea. So, but that's still very classical. Now, on the other hand, we have quantum physics, which tells you that when, when things are possible physically, um, you, you sort of have to weight them all and allow them all to happen with different probabilities and see how that works out. So somehow, when you combine quantum with gravity, which we think must happen, 
um, it means that all those shape-changing possibilities that space-time have ought to be able to happen. And so that then suddenly allows you the possibility that time is quantum mechanically doing things. It can essentially replumb itself in different ways because of the rules of quantum physics. Perhaps down in the very, very small, that would be the quantum realm. And so there are models of um, quantum gravity. Uh, one of the theories of quantum gravity that we work on is, is string theory. And it does tell you that there are possibly ways that you can essentially have a description of space and time that allows it to fluctuate in various ways. So what I have in mind when I think about what's going on in the quantum realm is that you go down to that level, um, space and time itself is, is, uh, is, is fluctuating because of quantum mechanics, which is beyond what Deutsch, for example, was, was, was able to, was, was thinking about. And then, perhaps by exploring all those new possibilities that you get when you're down there, you can re-emerge and come back to the classical world in a different way, and time has sort of sewn itself up in a different way. And for me, that's what they're really doing with that machine uh, in, uh, in Endgame. So that's really interesting. Uh, and Clifford, by the way, is an expert uh, on string theory, so, you know, I, I touch his feet when he talks about string theory, because that's hard math. I mean, <laughs> he's putting quantum mechanics and general relativity together. But the question I have, the quantum realm, I would normally think of the quantum realm as the nanoscale, about a billion times smaller than here. That's where atoms are. But isn't the, the kind of space-time modifications with quantum mechanics happening down at the Planck scale, which is like a trillion, trillion times smaller than that? Is that, is that yeah. right? So if you, um, if you go uh, to uh, Ant-Man, I think the original Ant-Man, yeah. um, that's already alluded to. It's already set up there. Um, there's a warning that Scott Lang has given by, by Hank Pym that he shouldn't go too small. Okay. Because it gets crazy, and you may never come back, as had happened to his wife. So, and and, and they so may even the have used. That's the scale. So, I never yeah, knew that. Yeah, so we yeah. say the quantum realm. We don't really mean what most people. I mean, in physics, the quantum realm is well explored, and it's at the atomic level. Or Elizabeth, who's a particle physicist, mm -hmm. goes maybe a billion times even smaller. Mm -hmm. But nobody goes to the realm that you're talking about. Well, right? that that was partly. Um, I think so. Uh, uh, Spiros. Um, uh, Michelatis, I think he's at Caltech, and I think he was a science advisor on um, Ant-Man 1 and 2, and, and, and he basically gave them that term, and then they used it perhaps more broadly than, than uh, okay. we, we practicing physicists would use. Okay, so and so helps. then you've got where you were talking about the um, time machine as a portal between different, um, different multiverses. You've got the quantum realm as that kind of portal, in a sense. Yeah. And you could argue, instead of using multiverses, which perhaps is unsettling to some, it, it's our universe that's kind of being re-sewn in mm -hmm. different, re-stitched in different ways. The narrative, um, you know, gets adjusted. Uh, but then you can go back at those insertion points and and, uh, and 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 fix it. And in some ways, you fix it. You have all the time you need to fix it because you can go back to that moment you took it out in the first place. So, and I, I love that we don't see. Cap going back, mm. we see him leave, but we don't, you know, there's, there's six movies, right? Um, <laughs> each one going back to make sure he insert, reinserts the stone I, I, you in might the right need, You might need to talk to Chris Evans about that. <laughs> but also that notion that you just talked about all the time you need, I thought it was very noticeable that, that in Endgame, mm -hmm. um, where there were those scenes where somebody, one of the main characters was making an emotional connection with a, a family member. Yeah. 
there was that sense of stretched time. Yeah. They had the time they needed. Exactly, but they really, they could spend years there as long as they get back in time, mm-hmm. which they will because they have a time machine. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so before we turn over to questions, we've got to, this is the question we've got to deal with. You alluded to it earlier. Oh, dear. I'm sure you're, you're, you're no one's asked it before. Let's talk about the captain. Yes. <laughs> and the return at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and, and, and how that relates in terms of from a, from a science point of view. Uh, well, what I mean, there, we actually have a public disagreement <laughs> uh, with with our directors, and again, it's a playful one. But uh, we are just Steve and I are just so taken with the idea that uh, Steve went back, and there, and somehow, therefore, has always been back, and got to live his life because I mean you get get Captain America loyalists who say that if you go back if Cap goes back in time he is honor bound to fix everything he knows is going to happen so he has to go save Bucky has to prevent the Kennedy assassination he's a very busy man Um, but that's not why we sent him back we sent him back so that he could become a whole person and 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 finally come home from the war so we didn't want him to go back and just keep adventuring. We wanted him to rest. Uh, and the only way we could <laughs> come to that solution is if there are two camps. Which I'm okay with. <laughs> Some people, Anthony uh, Russo yesterday proposed that he went out to uh, the ice, got his frozen self, defrosted himself, and they have like a timeshare where <laughs> sometimes Frozen Cap goes out and solves things, which allows our Cap to have a little more home time. And sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes it's our Cap. Also a valid theory as far as I Well, you know, the multi-world interpretation of time travel, which you guys are using, mm. you always have those two things. Yeah. The Caps are there and, and the David Deutsch solution is there's two caps forever. Just like you said, that would be the way that that would do. Yeah. I should just mention that the David Deutsch solution involves quantum mechanics, not our quantum mechanics. He has to make a major modification in violet unitarity yeah. to make it work. So it's right. not, it's a, it's, He's that's insane. a problem. Here's the particle <laughs> physicist is saying it's a problem. So it's not, I don't want to give the wrong impression that, that time travel actually can work. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe one last remark, and then I guess we should, yeah. Um, One of the things that the universe is very good at, and we don't know why, it's very good at making sense. Um, No one knows why it makes sense. No one knows why it's even understandable, but somehow it is, and, you know, we, we can make sense of the world and navigate the world. We can write down equations in our notebooks and, and they predict things and we go out and test them again and again, and it seems to work. So, um... That suggests to some of us that um, uh, the if time travel, so right now on the page, time travel looks like it just can't work. You, you have paradoxes. Quantum mechanics may resolve some of those paradoxes. You know, if you go back even to the original H.G. Wells, he was already thinking about uh, the fact that in some ways the universe itself may protect itself from not making sense. So there are probably additional rules that we don't know about yet 
that if time travel is possible in some limited way, time travel into the past, it is possible to go into the future, and I can explain how, but we don't have time, um, <laughs> ironically. Um, uh, if, if time travel... Let's just add, how many minutes do we want to add to the panel? Yeah. Um, if time travel to the past is possible, it might be in some limited way that somehow makes sure that all narratives makes sense. And that's what I think is going to be the way out. For that's all, super cool. That's all, kind of like Hawking's uh, chronology protection yeah. conjecture. So it'll, be like it'll be the narrative projection conjecture. You heard it here first, yeah. folks. <laughs> right. And so, so it might be that from some person's point of view, I made a time machine and I did a thing. From everyone else's point of view, you won't even notice that time travel had happened because you're just moving toward your future, even though from some perspectives it's kind of went around and went to someone else's past. And I think there may be logical ways that the universe, you know, it might be you, you, you know, going back to H.G. Wells, right? You make the time machine, you go back in time, and then every time you try and do something that would stop you from making that time machine that would have sent you back, something happens. You trip over a wire, you, you know, the, the, an earthquake happens, and the universe somehow just, the physics proper in such a way as to protect the narrative in some sensible way. So, so it seems unlikely um, that time travel is uh, into the past is possible, um, but you know there may be loopholes in some way. Uh, but what it will actually look like to us uh, from a narrative perspective, uh, it's not clear. All right, great. So, who's got questions? We got a microphone right here in the center. <laughs> All right, so. Imagine that after I ask you this question, I'm unsatisfied with your answer. I can make sure that's true. <laughs> and so I go back in time two minutes to get behind myself in line to ask a follow-up. So now there's two of me in line. <laughs> just checking. <clears throat> All right, so now there's two of me here. So now you're saying we haven't just spontaneously created mass in our universe. We're actually borrowing mass from an alternate universe. Is that right? That, that's so, that. Do I, go ahead, Kurt. Right. Well, so, I wouldn't so say the, you're borrowing it. You stole it. It's not, I mean, it's here. And in some other universe, you disappeared. <clears throat> and it's, but it's the me that disappears is not actually me. It's some alternate me. That's Maybe he's the an multiverse. angry me with a goatee. The multiverse is that there's billions of copies of you right now. Every time a little atom hits in this desk, if you believe this thing, a new universe is created and, that, and you are there. And when I step into the time machine, I end up in one of these other universes, not the one that I left. So now I've got a whole bunch of angry people and they're all, they all have goatees and I don't. That's right. a theory, but because, it's not right. Because the alternate dimensions can't be perfect copies of each other, right? Isn't that part of the multiple universe theory? Yeah, the whole, the whole point is that they're not this, exactly the same. They're yeah. different. Interesting. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, first off, um, I, I really like the thought of old Cap at the funeral. I think that's great. <coughs> Until he kisses his nephew. <coughs> it needs to not niece. Well, that ruined it. That's, um, uh, how, this, this is more from like a, a movie standpoint. How do you go into a movie with, with like something like this where you need a science advisor? Like how do you know who to look for and how does someone end up becoming you know, a science advisor? Do you make a Twitter account? Do you put up flyers? <laughs> All of the above. Um, well, uh, Marvel has 
previously established relationships. So they basically said, you guys need a science advisor? Hang on. And so I don't know exactly how the uh, relationship initially started. So um, I, I think, uh, so I do a lot of science advising, not just for Marvel, but lot, lots of other things. And uh, some of it is through independent contact. Some of it is because I have a Twitter account or my, my old blog. I, I talk about science in the movies. People find out that you care. Maybe they hear that you did a good job uh, on some other project and, and they pass you on to, to someone else. But I should say, um, some years ago, a lot of this got um, a, a lot of help from the, from the National Academies of Science. Um, and they set up something called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Yes. And so they will, you know, they do tell you um, if, uh, if, if you're uh, uh, someone in entertainment working on a project and you, you might need a science advisor of some sort, call 1-844-NEED-SCI and someone will pick you up. And they have a list of people who, who, who care about this sort of thing who, uh, depending upon the kind of science you're interested in, they might be able to find someone to connect you to. So they, they do that, and that, that, that has helped, I think, uh, quite a bit. Marvel, uh, overall, I think, has been super smart, more than any other franchise company I know. Uh, um, uh, they've been super smart consistently using the services, mm -hmm. and so um, there's a number of us on all of those films you've seen since um, since Iron Man, um, uh, the Science and Entertainment Exchange has been helping uh, get scientists in. Also in some of the TV stuff, I, I, I was a science advisor on every, every episode of uh, Agent Carter season two, for example. We did a deep dive on some of the science there, and that was connection came from that too. Thank you. Thank you all for being here and sharing your expertise with us. This has been my favorite panel so far. I love science, but I don't have a science background. I don't have a college degree. Um, I'm especially interested in things like quantum theory and string theory. Are there any books or blogs or search engines you could recommend to me that would kind of be in like <laughs> terms that I could understand or <laughs> I don't have to have like a deep understanding of the science, but I could start start to like learn more and Oh wow. Uh, I did not pay you to, to yeah. So first of all, I should say others, um, uh, I think, have written books as well, but let me just quickly yeah, any, say. Let me just quickly say, um, uh, as an alternative to some of the more standard uh, books out there, I actually um, wrote a, a graphic novel style book. It's, it's The science is nonfiction, the scenarios are fictional, but this, um, where, where you can actually explore some of those concepts. And then then what you can do at the end of every chapter, there are uh, suggestions for further reading. So it's 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 perhaps an ideal uh, that sounds introduction. amazing. What's it called? Um, um, so it's called the dialogues, conversations about the nature of the universe. And I'm so embarrassed to be so plugging. I'm so sorry, everyone. I plugging at Comic Con. My book is a technical book. It's it is not aimed at someone like you. However, the book that actually got me started in quantum mechanics is a book by. Heinz R. Pagels. He was, he's a physicist. He's passed now. Um, but it was the first quantum mechanics book that ever made sense to me. And that's kind of what got me started in quantum mechanics. This cosmic was a code? couple decades ago. The Cosmic Code by Heinz R. Pagels. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and also, yeah. if you go to um, the website of, for example, CERN, the big um, particle collider in Europe where the Higgs boson was discovered. Can you spell that for me? Sorry? Can you spell CERN for me? C-E-R-N. Thank you. And they have um, a huge amount of um, interactive stuff of all kinds to explore uh, different aspects of particle physics on the quantum realm. And since this is, uh, since this is uh, comics, uh, there's uh, another one. Um, it's by Bub and Bub. A father and daughter team, and they they uh, did a very different kind of graphic novel style book, uh, just about quantum mechanics, which came out I think last year. But the Elegant Universe uh, by uh, Brian Green, Brian Green yep. yeah, that's that's a really good popular le level thing about general relativity and string theory and all that stuff. You know, I like that book. Lisa, Lisa Randall. Randall's books are also yes. amazing. Yes. Uh, really, really very good. Yeah. Thank uh, you all so much. Many of those books are, even if you just go into the bookstore and take snapshots of the notes pages of my book, you'll find references to all those great books, uh, uh, or many of them, uh, in the notes of my book as a sort of introduction. Thank you. Hi there. Hi. I want to address the gold coin theory as it relates to self-determination and the examples that have been given in, say, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban or I think Brian Hickman's uh, Secret Avengers book that's focused on the Black Widow, where in a lot of these cases, effect preceded cause, where these things happened and then you go back in time and you find out that those things happened because someone went back in time. And in direct comparison, I'm going to compare Hermione going back in time in Azkaban to your coin theory. If you go back and send that coin back in time, now let's say it's got a geolocator. Instead of bringing it back into the machine, you bring it back and put it on your nightstand and you say, oh, where this coin come from? Then you create the machine and you go back and realize this coin was, is there because I went back in time or I sent it back in time and put it there. Not making it reappear inside the machine and creating that loop. Where Hermione, I go back in time after we've seen that instance A, B, C, D happened and now we realize those occurred because you went back in time. Right, so there's so many. Um, the, the truth is, a classical time machine like you're talking about will always have uh, paradoxes. We didn't even talk about the grandfather paradox. I get into my machine, I go back five minutes, I get out, destroy the machine, five minutes later I meet myself trying to get into the broken machine. There's two of me forever. There's no way I could have gone back in time to do what I did. So classical time machines always, in my opinion, have paradoxes. Now, a writer doesn't want to have a paradox appearing in their story, so they make up rules yeah. so that that doesn't happen. So the whole thing in The Prisoner of Azkaban, those things are, they, they want, the writer doesn't want to have carte blanche to do anything. So, but I think if you look carefully, all these different kinds of time machines, you know, having it go somewhere else, that's good for stopping the instability, right, that, that, that I talked about, that destroys real time machines and black holes. But that's, other people may have different opinions, but that's mine. I, I actually do like um, examples of stories where 
you, as long as you never know where the loop is first entered, mm -hmm. it's a perfect loop that sits in the story. And, That's and, right. And it was always there. And, and uh, it would be, a, it, I think it's an example of a... a, a of a narrative protection. A, well, it's narrative protection, <laughs> but I think it's an example of uh, a, a perfect close time loop in physics that, um, that, that somehow, uh, you know, has some way of dissipating the buildup that you would get. Yeah, but and that, that's exactly what Deutsch does, but it does require non-unitary mm -hmm. quantum mechanics mm -hmm. in, unless you're doing something weird on mm -hmm. the Planck scale. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, so that said, no non-unitary quantum mechanics. Yeah. Don't do anything weird on the Planck right. scale. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's all the time we have for our panel today. So I want to thank you all for coming. Let's thank our panelists. Eric and Clifford, Kim, Elizabeth, and Christopher. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day.